a lot of these children, these younger children that are growing up in this super, you know, advocate for dyslexia, dyslexia is a gift generation, sometimes feel pressure that they need to demonstrate how creative they are. They need to demonstrate how entrepreneurial they are. They need to demonstrate how design savvy they are to kind of prove that they're part of the club. So basically what a lot of parents are doing is because their children are not doing well in the traditional school system, they're often feeling nervous. And so they put a whole nother box. They say, you don't need to fit into this box, but fit into that box. Welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and this week I'm talking with Elisheva Schwartz, a dyslexia researcher, mother, wife, intelligence redefiner, and host of the Dyslexia Quest podcast. Elisheva is on a mission to decode the dyslexic mind and empower the dyslexic community to fully understand both the strengths and the difficulties of the processing style. If you have a child with learning differences like dyslexia, this is a must-listen-to episode. Elisheva gets personal and shares her story of her own childhood of struggling to reconcile her passion for learning with repeatedly being told she was learning disabled. Elisheva has channeled the pain of her own childhood journey to helping families raising kids with learning differences help their kids feel empowered and confident about who they are, while also knowing how to advocate for them in school. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And before I get to the episode, if you've heard some buzz about my book, Differently Wired Yet, but you haven't checked it out, I invite you to download the first chapter and table of contents at tiltparenting.com book. And if you have read it already and liked what you read, I would be grateful if you would consider leaving a review on Amazon and or Goodreads. More reviews means more visibility for the book, and I want to make sure the people who would benefit from its message can easily find it. Lastly, if you're reading Differently Wired as a group online and you would like me to join you for a Facebook Live or Facebook chat, just send me a message via the Tilt Parenting Facebook page or email me at debbie at tiltparenting.com and we'll see what we can do. And if you're looking to read it as a group for an in-person book club, I would love to find a way to even just Skype into your group. So go to tiltparenting.com book and click on the learn more button where it says, is your book club reading differently wired? And you can follow the steps there to connect with me about your book club. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with Elisheva. Hello, Elisheva. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Debbie. I'm excited to be here. It's a real treat to not be in the driver's seat today and be interviewed. So um, I'm excited to do this. Will you just sit back and relax in the passenger <laughs> seat? And uh, yeah, we'll just have a nice conversation. I haven't done a lot of episodes specifically around dyslexia. And so I'm really excited to to learn more about your work and to share the resources that you have with our listeners. I think you're doing some really cool work. So as a way to get our conversation started, could you just introduce yourself? I always ask people what their personal why is and just tell us a little bit about who you are in the world. Sure. So um, my name is Elisheva Schwartz and I am a wife and a mom of two little kids 
And I have a dyslexia consultancy, which basically means <laughs> that uh, I have a podcast called The Dyslexia Quest, where it's a weekly show where we talk about a whole bunch of different issues having to do specifically with dyslexia and the strengths of dyslexia, but also a bunch of other topics that are interesting to either dyslexics or parents that are raising children that don't really fit in the traditional school model and how to support them, whether that has to do with the social emotional impact of not thriving in school or whether it has to do with rethinking the role of school in our lives or the role of standardized testing or traditional education. So I use dyslexia as a backdoor to tackle all these different questions and topics that are interesting to me. And I also have a parent course that happens biannually. It's an eight-week deep dive for parents that have dyslexic children that are specifically dealing with the social-emotional impact of not thriving in the traditional school system. And it's a course to help parents know how to support their child's social emotional needs. Um, if they see, you know, a decrease in happiness and joy and risk-taking and um, it's sometimes hard for parents to know what to do when they're not expecting such little people to sometimes be dealing with such big feelings and such an early time in their life. Well, tell me, what is it that brought you to this work specifically? I mean, your passion comes through and just the way you talk about it and everything that I know about you and the Dyslexia Quest and your work. So what is your stake in the game? Yeah, so I've basically been thinking about these questions since I was about in second grade or, um, you know, in third grade. And as I couldn't keep up with my classmates and um, I saw that other kids were just acquiring these skills, literacy skills, numeracy skills, and I just couldn't hack it. And I have thoughts of being a third grader. And literally, I used to try to stay out of class as much as possible. And I would go to the restroom and pacing these huge hallways, it seemed like my school was massive to me as a little second grader and thinking about like, what's the role of education? And does it impact people? And I remember I must have been in, uh, it was third or fourth grade when my school uh, did a massive construction and I had this huge beautiful building with this really expensive library and really expensive science labs. And I remember thinking to myself, this goes to show that you can have really expensive amenities and have a really bad education. I was like reflecting <laughs> on what education meant. And I think it it was a survival mechanism because I was constantly asking myself the question of the fact that I am struggling in school and getting worse grades than all of my friends is that indicative of the fact that I am less capable and competent than what seemed like everybody else? And that seemed like a very, very urgent question from my, you know, my, my first memories and my first reflections and continue to be something that I, I, I constantly reflected on throughout my school experience. And just to give you the short, short-ish cliff notes, um, my difficulties in school quickly turned into behavioral issues. And when I was in third grade, I was perpetually getting kicked out of class and sent to the principal's office. And by fifth grade, I was being sent home, you know, for several days at a time. When I was in eighth grade, I was in a Jewish day school and everybody else in my grade was applying to these Jewish private high schools. And it wasn't supposed to be a complicated application process. They were just basically checking to make sure there were no children that were too difficult, but pretty much it was just assumed that everybody got in where they applied. And I remember I applied to three places and didn't get in anywhere. 
And I went home when I got the last rejection letter in the mail. And I just remember I was in my bathroom and I cried until the sun came out in the morning. I just didn't know why I couldn't get accepted anywhere. <sighs> See, when you meditate before you go on a podcast and wide open, you have your coffee, you meditate for, you know, get a good 20 minute TM session. And I'm just like wide open over here with you. But um, it, it brings me back to that feeling of just not really being sure why I couldn't hack it in the world. Everybody else just easily, it just was kind of a, a formality to apply and everybody else easily got accepted and I didn't get accepted anywhere. My parents didn't know what they were going to do with me. Um, eventually, I got into um, a kind of a new school that was looking for students that ended up being a very turbulent time as well. And when I was in a junior in high school, my body completely shut down and um, I got very, very sick, which was seemed to me like a clear indication of just all the stress around um, college and everybody was talking about college and SATs and APs. And, and it seemed like I put all this extra emphasis on my grades like I never put before. And I woke up one day and I said, I can't face another day of this. And my body shut down and I dropped out of school for half a year and basically just slept and recovered. And I remember being so thankful that my parents didn't force me back out to face another day because I was on zero. And I remember thinking that at that time that if my parents weren't as flexible and adaptive and supportive, just basically letting me sleep for months at a time to recover, I could have possibly been, you know, suicidal because I just remember the urgency that I placed upon myself that, you know, I have to finally, after years and years of struggling school, I have to get it together. I have to get my college applications together. I have to prove to finally have this last hurrah to prove to everybody how capable and smart and intelligent I am. I backed myself into this like intellectual corner that was, that seemed very steep. And so long story long, um, when uh, eventually I ended up studying psychology, individual differences, cognitive science, just really fascinated about why I felt like I had all these strengths and talents, but also tremendous difficulties in the traditional school system trying to make sense of it eventually turned into a blog, which um, turned into a podcast and a consultancy and the courses. And so here we are. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your story in that way and being so vulnerable with it. And I just really appreciate that. And I'm sure that so many people listening are really moved by your story. And also, it resonates. Because as a parent, this is our worst nightmare, right? That our child would ever feel that way. So I just really appreciate you sharing that. And it and it makes so much sense why you do the work that you do. I'm curious to know, you know, and I and I want to talk, I, I wasn't intending to go so much into your personal story. But I think it's really important because just to hear your journey is so powerful for the parents listening to this. So what did your parents know? What did you know when you were younger? Were you aware of the learning differences that you had? Yeah. So when I was in third grade, I actually went for a whole set of diagnostic tests. And my school said, she's definitely having difficulties and you should get her diagnosed. And it came back as a learning disability, a general learning disability, not otherwise specified. And it was a basic dyslexia type symptoms, even though the word dyslexia wasn't used. And I remember that term learning disability being thrown around a little bit. And it 
was so profoundly disorienting because my favorite thing to do in the world was to learn. And, you know, when I took the VIA, the strength finder, I remember when it came out like 10 years ago, the positive psychology movement, my number one character strength was love of learning. And I always was super curious and I loved learning. And so the term learning disability was one that I felt a lot of shame around. It didn't seem to resonate. It was clear that I wasn't doing well in school. It was clear that I couldn't stay afloat and I was failing classes. And that led to a lot of resentment and behavioral issues and snarkiness and avoidance. And I was always hiding in bathrooms or trying to get lost in the halls and stay out of class as much as possible. But the term learning disability really didn't seem resonant. So it was kind of like this hush-hush thing, like Elisheva has documentation that she has learning disabilities. And so I went to resource room and what it looked like in resource room was that it was easy work. It was busy work just to keep us kind of like babysat. And I remember there was constantly like behavioral charts where, you know, if you did these worksheets or did this quietly, you would get stickers. And if you got stickers, you would get glittery nail polish. And the glittery nail polish was exciting, but it was kind of just more just boring work. And I was very, very, very ashamed to go to resource room. And I remember in my elementary school on the loudspeaker, there were just a couple of kids that had to go to resource room and it would say, Ellie Sheva and like two or three other kids, please go to the resource room. And I just wanted to die Mm. because it was clearly that was like where, you know, the dumb kids went. And then there was a lot of rowdy boys that were throwing papers around the room. And it just didn't, it didn't, It didn't seem like an aspect of my experience that I wanted to integrate into my identity or who I was. It was like it to me, it felt like I'm not doing well in school. So they're kind of putting me in this room. And this is kind of a shadowy, embarrassing aspect of who I am that, you know, they see me as somebody that has like some learning disability. And ultimately, that perspective led my parents to, um, my school knew about my background with learning disabilities, but when my parents were trying to get me into these private schools to go to high schools, they decided not to bring up my background, my paper trail with learning disabilities because I already had three rejections and they did it. They were trying to get me into a Jewish high school and they felt, and I think it's all about how you frame it and it's the parent's job to to educate school personnel that are not properly educated and put the framing, but they felt like the school wouldn't want to take me if they knew I was a complicated, quote unquote, special needs, learning disability student. So it was kind of my parents' shame around it or discomfort around it that I picked up. So it was this big secret. And then clearly that didn't work because I had no accommodations in place, no understanding. And that all blew up, you know, halfway Mm -hmm. through. But um, I think, you know, my parents, it was a completely different time. There was no internet. There was no communities. My mother, she kind of looked to the left and to her right. And it just seemed like nobody else was having these kind of difficulties. Everybody else's second and third grader was, you know, coming home and doing their 30 minutes of homework at the kitchen table and, you know, maybe having a little difficulty with friends or this and that, but seemed to be able to progress and get their multiplication tables down pat and do the reading homework. And it just seemed like, you know, we were having all these issues and it was hard for her to understand the experience at all. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. 
And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'm so curious to know, based on your experience and then, you know, the work that you do today and supporting families who are going through this journey with their kids, what has changed? Like, I feel like there's a growing awareness of all kinds of neurodifferences and dyslexia in particular. You know, I feel like there have been so many, you know, celebrities or successful people who come out and and share publicly, you know, this is what I experienced. And I feel like the stigma is, is lessening. And I also still hear from parents everywhere that learning differences in particular can be so hard to get support for, especially if a child is able to compensate for their challenges. So they're kind of still surviving, you know, they're, they're getting by. So I'm just wondering, what is the climate like now versus when you were a student? Oh, my gosh, I love that question, because literally everything changed. 
like to be able to have a front row seat to see this conversation completely and dramatically shift, you know, 360% tilt. And I think it all has to do with the internet and it all has to do with the conversation shifting from a couple professionals that were involved in the industry, like researchers and doctors, where it was very removed and it was very hypothetical. It was, you know, as we research, um, you know, this cohort of individuals, it looks like people have deficiencies in phonological awareness to the internet that actually gave voice to the family members and the moms and the individuals themselves. And the way that the vocabulary completely transformed from deficit language to different language completely comes from parents saying, we're living with our children. And it doesn't occur to us that it's just a disability. It occurs to us that this is who they are as full three-dimensional people. And in some environments, it is a disability. And in some environments, it's a strength. And family members, as specifically parents wanting to use language that had reverence for different and that showed full respect for their children. And it makes sense because it's when you're living with a person that's not doing well in the traditional school system, or you are that person, you have a completely different perspective than somebody that's looking at it as a statistic or looking at it clearly just from, you know, where, where are the differences in phonological awareness? Where are the differences in acquiring, you know, numeracy skills? So it's just been absolutely amazing to see what happens when you give voice to the family members. What happens when you give voice to the individuals? What happens when people begin to share their stories? And the internet completely changed the conversation. And so when I was growing up, it was just a different world. Learning disabilities, it was something that was like completely hush-hush. There was nothing glamorous about it. There was nothing celebrated about it. It was just this shadow of, you know, some kids that ended up in the research room or in the special ed class or whatever it was. Well, let's talk about strengths. First of all, I just have to share that my number one strength in the Strengths Finders is also love of learning. So maybe that's one reason why we hit it off so well. And I love that. And, you know, gosh, I can only imagine how that must have felt and that that you were this third grader who was questioning the role of education and you have this natural desire and love of learning and then being told that this is actually an language being used that this is something that you're not necessarily good at. So gosh, I just like I picture you as this third grader thinking those big thoughts and feeling so conflicted. But let's talk about strengths, then I too very much believe in looking at neuro differences as strengths and through that lens and helping our kids see their own strengths. How do you like when you're working with a family or with kids who are really struggling to see any strengths in what's going on with their learning differences. How do you have that conversation? How do you reframe dyslexia and other learning differences so that they're able to see it through a strengths-based lens? Yeah, so it's that that's definitely like a multi-layered question. Um, to start, I firmly believe that every way of processing information on one side is a strength and on one side is going to be a deficit or disability because the way the brain works is it's like a cohesive system. So reading isn't 
there's not a part of the brain that has to do with reading. There's a part of the brain that has to do with recognizing symbols and memorizing those symbols to have a specific sound. And that underlining strength will show up whether you're reading or it might show up whether you're memorizing a bunch of unrelated things on a grocery list. It has to do with recognizing symbols that don't have any inherent meaning. It's procedural learning and it's memorization. So it has to do with those underlining strengths. And there's always, if you have strength in one area, it always means that you're going to have deficits in other areas. And I, I believe this to exist in literally every area of life. And um, I had a younger sister who, not to make this podcast any heavier, but I actually think there's um, it's empowering. But I, I had a younger sister who was Down syndrome, and uh, she passed away from an unrelated brain cancer. But hearing my mother talk about her experience of somebody who was Down's, and there were different cognitive processes that were much harder for her and how that opened up her awareness to she was super sensitive and super spiritually tapped in. My mother said like she would have therapists and she she would if anybody was a little mean or a little shady or not really like didn't have good energy about them, she would pick it up right away. And how the trade off of not having specific strengths in some areas just opened up her consciousness to her sensitivities and her perceptual abilities and her kindness and her love. And I think a lot of people see this with Down syndrome individuals that because some other abilities aren't there, the other side of the coin is you have access to all these other strengths and awarenesses that other people might struggle to have access to or might work an entire lifetime to peel off the layers to get access to that that level of awareness and processing and connection and noticing and spiritual attunement. And you see that with, you know, some people, they're super spontaneous. And on the other side of spontaneity might be that they're disorganized. So it's not a surprise, all the literature and all the research that I've been doing and talking to people involved in research, that there's this huge budding field of the strengths on the other side of these difficulties with specific school-related tasks. And a framework that I love to use when discussing these issues is I love using Dr. Brock and Fernet ID's framework of the mind strengths. And I did a tremendous amount of research talking to the specific individuals involved in a lot of the studies with the strengths that come with dyslexia. And having done a lot of my own research, I always come back to the fact that Dr. Brock and Fernet ID, the authors of The Dyslexic Advantage, did an amazing job really synthesizing everything. And um, so the way that they talk about the mind strengths, and I can share them super quickly, is um, M-I-N-D is an acronym for M is material reasoning, and it has to do with three-dimensional spatial, visual spatial reasoning. So it's the ability to see something and rotate the shape in your mind. So to see a Lego piece and imagine how to use that piece in a bunch of different contexts. It's to be able to see a couch in your in a store and imagine what it would look like in a room from many different perspectives. And that's the same strength that some dyslexic kids, although not all of them, um, they'll do letter reversals past what's developmentally appropriate. And it comes from that super flexible way of thinking that, you know, if I can imagine a couch in many different positions, I can imagine a Lego piece in many different positions. It's hard to keep my B's and my D's and my Q's and my P's in one position because it's that flexibility of being able to rotate shape and images in a three-dimensional 
way. And that's why you see very high levels of dyslexia in the design profession. So in interior design and graphic design and video design, um, those fields are pretty inundated with dyslexics and the Royal College of Art. Actually, they did a survey of everybody in their in their art school, and they found that one in four students were dyslexic, which is a huge overrepresentation than in the population, where in the population, you're talking more about 16 to 20% of the population having some kind of learning disability, and they say dyslexia is the most common one. So that's the first one. The second one, I'll just go through these really quickly, um, is interconnected reasoning. That's the ability to connect more disparate and unrelated ideas and synthesize them together. Then narrative intelligence, which is an ability to be good with stories, specifically having to do with personal stories, um, creating stories, metaphor, and dynamic reasoning, which has to do with predictions, like people that have very um, good, strong dynamic reasoning, they have their pulse on what will unfold. So a lot of these students, specifically when they're young, it's a strength that's not noticed because they don't, they're not around other people. So for them, when mobile was starting to be big, it's obvious that mobile is starting to be big or that the kinds of people that they, they just know that like VR is going to be the next thing, or they kind of have their pulse on how things will unfold. And usually it's not until they work with groups of other people or they're working on team projects out in the real world that they notice that like, Hey, I, I have this skill and I have this ability. It's, I kind of know where things are going to be unfolding next or they they have a good sense of like how things will unfold so like the kinds of people that just get intuitively of you know we're going to live in a world that there's kind of going to be a 3d overlay of tech or something like that um that's just an example and all of what all of these have in common is the kinds of thinkers that do much better when they can attach you know, an overriding sense or story or metaphor or like cohesive reasoning to something and real struggle with procedural information, rote memorization, symbols that have no inherent meaning to them, like spelling and reading. And a a way around this is to really just double down on trying to make sense of things, even if they don't make sense. So making up stories uh, around, you know, your spelling words, try to make up like funny little rhymes, try to create sense meaning to uh, decrease the load on abstract memorization and procedural learning. That's always helped. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us. I need to read that book. And listeners, I will include links, by the way, to all the resources that Ellie Shev is talking about on the show notes page. So you don't have to be taking notes right now, because this is really good information. We'll be right back after this quick break. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free 
a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. I'm curious to know for parents who are listening, whose kids, you know, have learning differences and maybe experiencing the loss of confidence or lower self-esteem, and they want to start this conversation, just helping them reframe their own thinking and looking at these differences in terms of strengths. What does that conversation sound like? That's something I get asked a lot from parents, just how do we talk to our kids about what's going on with them in a way that's going to help them feel good about it, but also feels really honest? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this super contentious conversation in the dyslexic community, and I'm sure it's also in the community around, like in neurodiversity in general and people on the spectrum of this kind of like rage of how can you call it a gift when I'm struggling so much and it doesn't occur to me as a gift. And it's true that being a non-traditional learner means it depends what environment you're in. If you're in an environment where you can capitalize on your difference, then your difference can be your biggest strength. And if you're in an environment that is a terrible fit, it can feel like the biggest liability. And I think it's important for parents to really be able to hear the aspects of their child's experience that's difficult and not wanting to, not being too uncomfortable with their child's pain that they want to go straight in with the Band-Aid and the cherry on top and, you know, the yellow smiley and, you know, Richard Branson and, you know, every other successful celebrity. And don't worry, it's really a gift because it's very easy for, um, for children to just feel not heard, that their experience and their difficulties are not being received and really understood if you go to that place too quickly. And a new thing that's coming up with the younger people that I talk to. So when when I grew up, there was no conversation about the gifts. There was no conversation about like, like nobody was drawing the dots of, I knew that I was so good and I had so many talents and I knew I was suffering in school. Nobody drew, drew the dots that, um, because you're such an imaginative thinker, because you're so dreamy and curious and such a big picture thinker and thinking constantly thinking so big picture, you have a difficult time with the details. Um, nobody drew the dots for me, but now a lot of these children, these younger children that are growing up in this super, you know, advocate for dyslexia, dyslexia is a gift generation, sometimes feel pressure that they need to demonstrate how creative they are. They need to demonstrate how entrepreneurial they are. They need to demonstrate how design savvy they are to kind of prove that they're part of the club. So basically what a lot of parents are doing is because their children are not doing well in the traditional school system, they're often feeling nervous. And so they put a whole nother box. They say, you don't need to fit into this box, but fit into that box. You should be an entrepreneur. A lot of dysle- There are a lot of dyslexic entrepreneurs, or you should be a creative individual. 
And um, some children feel this pressure of I need to prove that I'm a successful dyslexic or I need to prove that all my bad spelling was worth it because really I have these other skills and these other talents. And the irony in that is that a lot of these skills and these talents come from not a prescribed art. It's not about like being successful in art class that you copy exactly what the teacher does. Um, often it comes from breaking away from the box and tuning into your own intuition and finding your own creative voice, not trying to copy or mimic or be successful in another cultural stereotype. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm hearing this from the younger people that are growing up in kind of this like rah-rah dyslexia world that they kind of feel like, well, if I'm not doing well in another way, I need to be a nine-year-old that has a business. Or like I'm in high school and I haven't started my own entrepreneurial venture yet and like stress about like, well, maybe I'm not really, you know, a creative individual or maybe I'm, I'm not really entrepreneurial or I don't have like a YouTube show or a podcast and it becomes this whole other area of like stress and anxiety of like, my parents want me to be Richard Branson or Gary Vaynerchuk or whatever. Yeah, I can totally see that. And I love that you gave such a strong reminder of how important it is for us to allow for our kids discomfort and for our own discomfort and to not try to sweep that under the rug. I mean, that's a message I'm always sharing with parents about our own uncomfortableness with our own triggers and insecurities and concerns and fears that we have surrounding our kids. But it makes sense that we also need to model that for our kids and empathize with them. So important. And I hadn't thought about the reverse situation or challenge here of the current culture and it putting pressure on kids in a whole new way. So thank you for that. I think that's really important to find that balance when we're talking with our kids about this stuff. So before we we jump off the call, I'd love to just talk about school a little bit. This is a two-pronged question. So the first part is, what do you see as the biggest roadblocks currently for kids with dyslexia in today's schools? And then for parents who are struggling to get their child the support they need, like, do you have any tips for them on how to, to successfully advocate? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say the biggest roadblock is, I would say, first, second, third, fourth grade. Those school years, especially one through three, very often in the traditional school system, is so focused on procedural learning and getting the quote-unquote foundations down that very often dyslexic students that struggle with that kind of learning, there's not opportunity for more kind of big picture conversations and creativity and uh, sharing their thoughts and sharing their feedback. Like very often, it's so focused on getting the literacy down that it's really only until fourth and fifth grade where you have more conversations about what you're learning. And uh, when I was studying education and I was studying um, Bloom's taxonomy of skill acquisition, which is this basic theory that first students need to get the procedures down and then they can go on to higher order processing and kind of higher order thinking about it. But I think that that is definitely not true for many students. And you see some of these, you know, five and six year olds that they have so much to share. They want to share their thoughts and their feedback. And, you know, some some of these students, you ask a five year old, what advice would you give to a three year old? And they could start their entire podcast. Um, <laughs> but there's no opportunity for that. It's just like go from worksheet to worksheet, practice your literacy, practice your numeracy, memorize facts. And it's important, but 
a lot of those students really struggle by not having opportunities for all these other skills and talents, um, primarily just like sharing their thoughts about what they're learning, sharing their feedback, being able to lead discussions, being able to act things out, do plays, talk about what they think is important, what they think is not important, how it impacts their life. All those conversations are not really happening on on the younger level. And I think that some children are not ready for that, but some children are really dehydrated for it. There's so much emphasis on the concrete learning and they're really dehydrated for, you know, ask me about my um, experiences with my brother or what it means about relationships or love or family. Like you, you see some of these children that have that are, they, they really struggle by not given, given an outlet for it. And sometimes the stretch from uh, first grade to third grade could seem like forever just getting through until the classroom starts becoming a little bit more dynamic. And one piece of advice that I would give to parents that are going through this is that they should never underestimate the power of their child feeling heard and received and the power of a real genuine loving hug. And so often parents, especially now with the internet, they go online and they educate themselves and it's so important and they get super involved in the advocacy and they have 25 books on the subject by their night side table and they're super tapped in and there's a, ambitious parents and they're listening to the Tilt podcast, they're listening to the Dyslexia Quest and they sometimes forget that the most powerful thing that they can do for their child is if their child comes back home and has a hard day and they look their child in the eye and they say, I totally get it. And they're just there with their child. They give their child a hug. They give their child a kiss. Like this is some of the most transformative medicine in the world, more than any tutoring, even though you guys should do all of that. You should do it all. But sometimes we get so busy doing things that we forget that some of the most healing medicine for our children is that they're heard, that there's somebody that can mirror back their experience, that they feel understood, that they feel loved for who they are and what they're going through. And we sometimes forget about that. Thank you for that. That wasn't the kind of advice I was expecting. And I think it's exactly what we needed to hear. So I really appreciate that. And your perspective there's so much that we could talk about and we will have to, if you're up for it, have you back on the show another time because I, there's a lot of science pieces that, you know, I know that that's a big piece of your personal interest in getting into the data and on intelligence and how all this fits together. So perhaps we can tackle that in another episode. But before we go, can you let listeners know where they can connect with you? Um, what they can find? on your website and what you, you know, maybe what you have coming up in the next couple months that would be of interest? Absolutely. So um, you can find me at the Dyslexia Quest. So on Instagram, um, we've got a nice thing going on at the Dyslexia Quest. And on Facebook, it's Ellie Sheva Schwartz and everything else is ellieshevaschwartz.com. And in the first week of October, I'm giving a series of free hour-long lecture all about supporting the self-esteem and the social-emotional health for dyslexic children. So if anybody has a dyslexic child or a child that seems dyslexic-like or showing some dyslexic symptomology and is not thriving in the traditional school system and you are feeling a little overwhelmed or unsure how to support their happiness and their thriving and their social-emotional health, you might find it 
really interesting. I'm giving the same lecture just at a whole bunch of different time zones. So you can see which one you can attend to and people can keep their eye out for that. And otherwise, I'm pretty much on Instagram and on the podcast at the Dyslexia Quest. Awesome. Yeah, I follow your Instagram feed and I love it. It's very aspirational, inspirational. And yeah, listeners, again, I will leave links to all of the social media places and for Ellie Sheva's upcoming webinar in the show notes page. So definitely check that out. And Ellie Sheva, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation for me and I'm sure for many of our listeners. And I hope that you will come back again sometime. Awesome. My absolute pleasure, Debbie. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Whoa, I'm used to being the podcast host. I just (laughs) hope you thanks for coming on. Um, (laughs) Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to Ella Sheva's website, her podcast, The Dyslexia Quest, and all of the other resources we discussed, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 121. If you get value out of this podcast, please consider supporting it by making a small monthly contribution to help me cover the cost of production. There's an easy way to do this too. There's an online platform called Patreon. Your contributions and that of other supporters are actually helping me pay my awesome editor, Donna, who takes my recorded conversations and intros and outros, cleans them up, edits them, tags them for iTunes, and uploads them onto my SoundCloud account. And this literally saves me hours of time each week, which then allows me to focus on all of the other pieces of keeping Tilt going and supporting this community. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also find a link on the Tilt Parenting website on any of the show notes pages. And of course, I couldn't end a podcast without my weekly reminder to leave a rating and or a review for the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. There are a lot of parenting podcasts out there and ratings and reviews help keep our podcast highly visible, which in turn makes it easier for me to reach out to those bigger guests and have them say yes. So thank you so much. And of course, thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.